Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I am pleased to be joined by Nicole Lim. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Yeah, thank you for being here. Thanks for taking some time out. Uh, I'll say this. My voice is a little scratchy today, uh, dealing with what I hope is just a cold. <laughs> I hope so, too. Uh, so if I, yeah, thank you. Uh, I literally just got an email from a pastor I know who's like working from home because they think their family has something. So it's kind of kind of scary for everybody. Yeah. Uh, Nicole is a speaker, educator, and consultant on leveraging dignity through the restorative art of storytelling. She's a founder and international director of Freely in Hope, a nonprofit organization dedicated to equipping survivors and advocates to lead in ending sexual violence through their rewritten stories. Um, and you can find out more at her website. I'll kind of leave that, uh, the rest of your bio. And you can, you can tell us, uh, what else would you like our, our listeners to know about you? What's your story? Yeah. Um, well, so what brought me to my work in working with survivors of sexual violence was through my former work of uh, being a photographer and filmmaker. So my background mm -hmm. is actually in being an artist and a storyteller. And so having that kind of background and then jumping into the nonprofit international uh, development world was a complete shift from going from just simply capturing the story to now being a part of recreating stories um, it was yeah. a big learning curve for me. Um, and so that that's an interesting tidbit, I think, of, of what informs my perspective on international development. Um, also, I'm a third generation Chinese American born and raised in the Bay Area, best area to be from. So I'm really <laughs> proud Bay Area uh, Asian American. Awesome. And uh, unfortunately, this isn't only an audio podcast, but Nicole has a nice array of pictures that I imagine are yours behind you, right? As I'm looking at you. Yeah, the pictures for my background are actually pictures that are featured in the book. So if you get my book yeah. that we're going to dig into, you can uh, take a look at them for yourself. Early tease. I like it. I like it. Well, yeah, we'll talk about your book here in just a sec. Um, but tell us if you would, like, what has it meant for you to be a Christian uh, in, in, the, in your past and then how, how your faith journey has kind of grown and developed. Yeah. So another fun fact about me that people a lot of times don't, don't expect is I come from the Salvation Army denomination. We are not yeah. a cult. We wear these funny looking <laughs> uniforms. I know, but it's a symbol of baptism because for some reason we don't practice water baptism. So the uh, mm -hmm. uniform is like a physical symbolic uh, gesture of what our baptism oh, looks like. It. So it's I did like, not know that. yeah, so it's like we're walking around and you know that we're baptized in that sense, um, which is why we, uh -huh. the water goes away, but yet our uniform can be a lasting um, physical testament, I suppose. Um, I personally hate the uniform though. So for those who mm -hmm. are listening that might be Salvation Army and are diehard uniform fans, y'all look good when you look good. But for me, uh -huh. <laughs> I'm going to just do my own thing over here. But um, yeah, so I grew up in this uh, denomination where our tradition is very rooted in service to the poor using yeah. social services and um, shelters and um, 
healthcare facilities and support systems for underprivileged youth um, as a means of uh, evangelism. And so that connection yeah. of social care and concern together with faith was always um, a deeply rooted practice for me growing up. I learned from uh, all the way from my grandfather, who was a Salvation Army pastor, and what it looks oh, wow. like, yeah, to merge faith together with social sectors. And so that's definitely been a formative foundation for me uh, growing up. I love it. I think I think I was in seminary really when I first learned about, you know, I think I imagine like most people, we see Salvation Army stores and we think, oh, it's just another nonprofit like Goodwill and such. And I was kind of like amazed at the uh, the backstory of of the denomination. When is it like early uh, 20th century? 1865 kind of is, that is when we okay, were founded. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and I think in America, especially, it, we look different all around the world. But in yeah. America, we have transitioned to a more social services disaster relief nonprofit, if you will, that the faith mm -hmm. side of it has become uh, not so much at the forefront in terms of marketing. But if you look yeah. at our history in 1865, we actually yeah. stemmed from the Methodist tradition, as you probably know, mm -hmm. where our founder, William Booth, was like, how come everyone going to church are wearing fancy clothes and they're in this fancy yeah. building in, in, in this sheltered arena? Uh, church is supposed to be on the street. So he took his services to the streets, working with prostitutes, with people in bars, mm -hmm. uh, with homeless people. And that's actually where we started. And so I, I really value the tradition of Salvation Army. And, yeah. I, and I'm a little yeah. bit upset of how we've transitioned from bringing our church to the streets to now yeah. uh, missing a lot of that social justice component where social service has become more of a mm -hmm. imperative that doesn't come with the justice of bringing faith to those who need it most so i'm i'm like the original like this is what the founder wanted but through you know the course it. of a hundred years a lot of things have yeah. changed in our denomination oh this is thank you i'm in what a fun conversation we're having already here uh, a little nerding out a little bit for some church history yeah uh, and i can't i can't help but think too like um especially in this moment of time we find ourselves in how how needed it is would be to have something like a faith community and tradition like that where it's like there's this integration of justice and faith um i think that's in my opinion at least what's where we see this huge divide in america in christianity of absolutely of, um, social justice being seen as outside the church and christianity being this other separate entity Right. And I think that convergence is what's, is what's missing in a lot of, especially yeah. evangelical spaces. And for Salvation Army yeah. being from evangelical um, a space, early on in the, in the very early days, that uh, merging was um, imperative. It's like, why do we have buildings when we should be on the streets working and serving uh, people who are homeless, people in prostitution, people who are in the bars? How can we uh, adapt our... Um, our cultural understanding as well in terms of who who gets to be in the church who gets to be leaders in the church who gets to um be a part of um of bringing the message of the good news and that's that yeah. in, the, in our history it is those who were 
uh, marginalized that are the ones that are the messengers bringing the message forward. And so I think that still, you know, is is part of our culture, but it's not so much at the forefront. So I think that's something that uh, I really believe in in terms of my faith, of how that convergence of faith with social justice is. There is no separation. It is imperative mm -hmm. for our faith to move forward in social justice and social service for those who are marginalized, not just anybody, but those who are mm -hmm. at the margins who need that support most. And so I feel like our denomination does really well in um, service, but we forget about the leadership and the justice aspect sometimes. Love it. That, what a, yeah, this is such a fun conversation we're having already. Um, tell me about um, a spiritual practice that's been meaningful to you that you might recommend to others. Yeah, so I think service is a spiritual practice that for sure has been mm -hmm. deeply rooted based on my um, understanding of the Salvation Army and work in the Salvation Army. However, if we only find our spiritual value in service, we're going to get burned out and we're going to yeah. also develop an ego. We're also going to develop savior mentality that is not sustainable yeah. uh, because we yeah. are not saviors, we are humans. And so in that, what I've learned through my work and what has been imperative for me in my spiritual practice is uh, contemplation. So really bringing mm. it out to the ancient mystics of sitting in silence and liturgy and um, the being alone and finding the solitude, silence and stillness as spiritual practice, not in the doing, not in the serving, not in the hustling, not in the preaching, um, but using the spiritual grounding of contemplation um, as as the first, um, I guess the, the first and imperative foundations that from which all service and doing can stem from. Hmm. Wonderful. It's, it's hard right now. I imagine you feel the same way to kind of slow down and contemplate when we have so much happening around us. Absolutely. Um, and I think the pandemic is forcing us into stillness right now. I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's also forcing us into solitude. And for those who might yeah. live alone or for those yep. who live yep. in family systems that are not supportive, uh, being forced into stillness and solitude in the silence of the pandemic is definitely difficult. But I think there can also be a lot of uh, gifts from it if we just embrace it and let's sit with it and allow God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves in in just the being not the doing great um let's talk about your book then I, and I'm kind of like I can't wait to hear some of your responses based on like our already our kind of off-the-cuff conversation so you recently wrote a book and uh it's titled Liberation is here. Women uncovering hope in a broken world, and uh, I I was fortunate enough to read it and see some of those just beautiful artwork, and not just beautiful artwork, uh, beautiful words and stories and captured in the book. So you you talk about or you you've mentioned kind of being uh, what a photographer and a storyteller. Uh, how did like how did this formulate into writing a book? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've been approached by several publishers, publishers for the past 10 years. I've been doing this work for 10 years. And um, as you know, any fundraising person needs to do, they need to speak in, in public. And so yeah. as I was speaking in public at a conference, a publisher would come to me and say, you need to write your story, you need to write your story. And I'm like, I don't have a story. If you want a story to be written, then ask my girls and ask the survivors that I serve with. Mm, They're yeah. the ones with the story. But as time moved on and as I experienced my own um, 
experiences in the work from burnout to anxiety to depression yeah. to PTSD, that's when I realized that my story also, similarly to survivors of sexual violence, is not uncommon. That in this work mm -hmm. of advocacy, we can be so intent on doing again, back to the, the doing of the work, that we neglect ourselves in the process and we neglect to see the bigger gifts outside of our own plan or intentions. And that's what was happening with me. And so I experienced um, a huge just burnout um, as a result of stress and anxiety and overfunctioning and the injustice mm -hmm. of the world that I was felt that I was carrying on my own. And what I had to realize is that in opening up myself to the possibilities of what would it look like if the survivors that I was working with were actually part of um, oh. forming and molding and serving and leading with me? Um, in that way, the, the, the burden is shared. And in that way, we can actually see a lot more gifts that are unexpected. And so mm -hmm. um, as I started coming to that realization through my journey, that's when the story began to unfold more, where I realized that those who have experienced the most violent forms of oppression have the potential to become the most powerful liberators in our communities. And mm. in that realization for myself, from the leadership of the survivors I was serving, I was like, this is imperative to the gospel. This is imperative to um, our work in international development and social service. And that story needs to be told. And my girls were the ones actually telling me, hey, Nicole, you're the one with the platforms. You're the one going to all mm -hmm. these conferences. You're the one speaking on all these fancy podcasts. How are yeah. you going to leverage your voice for the sake yeah. of us? And the book was the next step for that. Awesome. Uh, something that I, uh, as when I was reading the book, something that kind of came across to me that I even hear you speaking to now, um, the tendency to kind of carry all the weight yourself. And I think this happens whether you're a pastor, uh, a nonprofit leader, you know, some kind of advocacy person. How do you, um, and it sounds like, you know, you really kind of like shifted some of that I guess since you've already kind of said it, you've kind of shifted that to some of your folks you work with, what was that process like and how did you recognize that you were carrying too much of it and what was it like for you to kind of share that burden with others? Yeah, so three years into the work, I started this work when I was 21 years old. So I was very yeah. young, fresh out of yeah. university. And when you're fresh out of university, you think you know something because you have a degree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't know anything. In fact, that's when your life begins. Yeah. And so when I first started, and again, the vocation kind of compelled me and it called me into it. My career path was to work for National Geographic. That was my goal. Oh, But the yeah. stories that I was learning on the field while working for other international agencies actually beckoned me to do more than simply tell the story, to now be a yeah. part of, of developing and funding those, those stories. And so I was doing this work for three years. I was 24, uh, three years into it, and um, was experiencing trauma after trauma, hearing story after story. Funding was limited. I couldn't fund all the university and high school school fees that needed to be funded. I couldn't afford the legal fees. A lot of legal yeah. systems we were coming up against were very corrupt and very unjust. We were losing cases. Yeah. Perpetrators were running around, threatening our girls' lives. And wow. our, the trauma of our community was had escalated into attempted suicides, into abortions, wow. and into um, just utter and complete exhaustion and depression. And mm -hmm. so seeing all of that, I felt that the what I saw, what I thought was the trauma that I was experiencing was a result of my failed leadership. And so oh, to wow. compensate, I overworked. 
I tried to do yeah. more. Again, back to the doing. Yep. I was doing more. I was hustling more. I was working more. I was making more phone calls. I was trying to fundraise more and do all the things that I that I knew I could possibly do. And I reached a point of burnout where I um, was living in one of the, the slums in, in Lusaka. And uh, because my immune system was low as a result of overfunctioning, I caught yeah. a cold and I didn't rest from that cold. I overfunctioned yeah. even more so where I lost my voice. And then that escalated into unbearable headaches, complete body shutdown. And I got a virus, an unknown virus. Uh, the doctors didn't know what it was, um, where mm -hmm. I could not even hold down water for days. And so uh, that um, exhaustion led me to the hospital. Um, I was also didn't want to go to the hospital for pride reasons, but also because of the level of health care uh, would not yeah. be sufficient. So it's like either, you know, I try to figure it out on my own or I take the risk. Right. And so it was so bad where I had to take that risk and go to the hospital. And mm. my pride was completely shot down because I couldn't even walk. I couldn't yeah. put my clothes on. I couldn't even put chapstick on my lips like I was that mm. weak and depleted. And it was in that experience that I was on the verge of giving up because I didn't feel that I was worthy to continue in this vocation that was so big and so audacious. And so like, I believe that the survivors and their dreams were so important that if I couldn't be the one to carry them to their dreams, then I'm insufficient for the job. And in that moment of feeling completely um, undone i guess and depleted is when i remembered the stories of our survivors that if they can choose to live into another day to go to school if they could choose to use their vocation to help other people if they can choose to still raise their children that they bore out of rape if they can still choose to um, find a sense of hope in their every day then i could also choose to try to live and lead into another day and so their hmm. stories constantly were the ones bringing me back to this recognition that if we all could work together we can potentially see an end to sexual violence if we as myself as an advocate not having experienced the level of trauma that they have can partner mm -hmm. together with them and their vision for a better world then we can potentially see something new come and emerge from that and so that's what called me back to this work um, time and time again yeah and that's what helped me realize that those who've experienced that sense of oppression can be the liberators. We just need to allow them the positions mm. and the authority and the funding and the education and training necessary to be that, to be those leaders. And uh, in my book, I talk about the many failures and the many successes that we've seen along the way as a result of seeing these leaders come into fruition. In, in many ways, I, I've been, uh, I'm working on an MBA in nonprofit leadership management okay. something like that right yeah, now dope. and that's one of the things that i was studying recently was enterprise development and and the the idea if what i'm hearing from you is that idea of inter, uh, asset community-based development yep right yeah uh, and it seems to contrast so often with very much as i would understand at least the western mindset of like we're going to come in and fix everything uh so yeah. talk a little bit about that kind of mentality shift where it sounds like that you're coming in not necessarily to fix everything, but to say, hey, where are some, where are the resources here that these women and girls already possess and how can we utilize their vision, their dreams to build something, right? Yeah, so what brought me to doing international photography in the first place was recognizing that there was a disparity of stories that were told of women of color. I knew from uh, my own bloodline that 
women in mm -hmm. my lineage, even though they came from poverty, even though they came from oppression and communism, even though they fought for their rights, the stories that were there were so beautiful and strong, yet what I was seeing in the media, especially in the news, was all disparity. And so yeah. that's why I decided to be a photographer, to tell the different story. And so I carried that same ethos, if you will, into my international development development work where I knew there must be a different story than what I'm hearing about Africa. There must be a different yeah. story of what I'm yeah. hearing about survivors of sexual violence. There must be something different that I don't know from mainstream media and I, and it is my job to find those stories and to uncover it and to leverage it. And so in that way, my work as a filmmaker really transitioned into this, this process of who's telling the story and who's leveraging those stories. And my role is really just to leverage those stories in a way that we can hear them from. Also, I think um, being Chinese American, um, we are a very communal culture where everything that we mm. do is shared in context of community, family system, supporting each other, eating together, cooking together. And that community aspect is inherent in, in what we do. And I think what I learned um, in, in working in context of survivors within African spaces is that there aren't many differences in terms of how we approach oh. community and how we approach mm -hmm. living together and how we approach sharing meals and sharing resources together. Um, sharing uh, our resources so that all of us could rise up together is imperative for our culture. And in the same way, that's what I saw in a lot of these Kenyan and Zambian cultures. However, I also went to grad school and yeah. uh, got a degree in uh, global leadership. And we're learning a lot about, you know, Western context of poverty alleviation and Western ideals of um, yeah. nonprofit management, which are all really important to learn in terms of theory, but do not let the theory override what the community is saying to you. And I think that's what mm. I learned is how do I merge yeah. my learnings together with what the community is actually saying? Because what I think from my Chinese American perspective will not be what my girl in Zambia needs. What I'm yeah. learning in international development nonprofit standards and perspective and ethos is not what my Kenyan girl needs. It's all gonna be different. Mm -hmm. And so taking all of those learnings from our family experiences, our academia, and ensuring that at the forefront, it's listening to the needs of the community um, is, what's, it's, is, is what I needed to really encompass altogether. Yeah, great. It seems like that's kind of been it's like the last 20 years that that kind of mentality has really existed is that is that fair is that an accurate timeline in your studies i i have no idea because i'm only 10 years okay. old into this <laughs> and and what i could see though in just an observation i would actually say it's yeah. more recent that asset-based community oh. development in terms of western nonprofit management now communities oh, all yeah. over the world have been doing this since time began it's only Western yeah. perspective that we're catching on and we're labeling it asset-based community development no. and Ubuntu Fair and all enough. of these things. It's like, yeah. hey, it's existed. We just caught on now. And so I think that's the learning curve for us in Western mindset of observation mm. first, learning first, and then realizing what do they really need? Sometimes it's just mm. funding. Sometimes it's just a belief system. Sometimes it's just education. And for us, what mm -hmm. I learned from survivors that when I first came in, actually, I thought it's just education that they needed. But okay. as I grew and as they spoke to me more about their dreams, I realized it wasn't just education. It was education, safe housing, a community of yeah. belonging, mental health care, physical yeah. health care, um, and, a, and a place to live that uh, could actually foster those dreams. All of that together, that holistic 
perspective is, is what they told me they needed. And so that's what we developed as time moved on in our organization. Well, let me ask you then, when I hear you talk about just the complexity of these issues, when it's, it's not just education, it's like you said, it's healthcare, it's mental health, it's uh, affordable housing. For me, at least, I can find myself kind of overwhelmed, um, even if I think of just what's happening in the States um, about all these issues. And I guess this is to my fault and to my shame, but I find myself overwhelmed and just kind of like, I don't know how to say it, but like immobilized. Mm -hmm, and I just, mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, like you encounter so much pain and so much tragedy uh, in your work. Like how do you just manage, I guess? And like, how do you keep your spirit going in the face of so much evil? I think is a fair word to say, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where, you know, when I share my story of how I got ill, um, I was literally immobilized at that point, literally paralyzed, yeah. not because I wanted to be actually, but because my body didn't allow it. My body didn't allow me to move forward. And so I, I totally understand what it means to be literally immobilized and also um, in the emotional sense, um, mm -hmm. immobilized where, you know, there's compassion fatigue and all of that, you know, terminology yeah. that we've branded in, in nonprofit spaces. Um, and I think that's all important to look at is, is what, why are we immobilized? Is it because we think that it's all of our responsibility to heal and to mend and to save and to protect? Is it because we are uh, afraid of engaging in pain that is not our own? Is yeah. it because we do not want to share the resources, yeah. even if they're yeah. limited, the resources that we have that we'd rather hoard it, that we don't want to give it away? Um, I think I definitely came up across all of those things where when I first started, there was a requirement that resources were shared, especially as um, when we first started, we started with what, what of our money was in my pocket, right? Before I knew how mm -hmm. to fundraise, I had to learn how to fundraise yeah. later on because yeah. we started to grow and more girls were coming into yeah. our program. But I had to choose, am I going to share my very limited resources? I had to make that decision. And as time moved on, it was also, am I going to realize that I cannot carry the burdens and I should not carry the burdens of the survivors. In fact, it's their burden, yet what does it look like to share the burdens? What does it look like to support them in their healing process? How do I avail myself to that? And how do we give back the leadership and responsibility to the communities where we realize our role is to support and leverage, to fund, to encourage, to believe in those mm -hmm. dreams? It's not all of our job to heal it. In fact, it's their mm. job to heal it. And so I think there, it, there's a required perspective shift um, that I have gone through and still am going through in many ways in terms of how I view, um, how I view development work, whether it be in the States, like you said, or whether it be abroad, um, how we develop based on listening to the needs of the community and allowing them to lead and realizing what is our role and what are the fears that are inhibiting me from engaging in pain. Unless we yeah. engage in the suffering of the world as Christ did, unless we engage in it, there will not be any healing. Only mm. through suffering can we experience healing and redemption um, as modeled through Jesus on the cross and not only Jesus on the cross, but literally everything he did, he went to where the suffering were lying mm. at the poolside, beat and broken on the roadside, women mm -hmm. who were silenced. Right. Yeah. And so if we look at that model, 
we have no reason to be afraid of suffering yet so many of us are because we don't want to yeah we open are. ourselves <laughs> to the yeah. unknown and that i believe is imperative not only for our faith but also for being more human wow that's good that's powerful i, I want to ask you kind of related to this and i think i've already heard your answer but just uh for my learning at least um I think of this from like a, in my context, I'm a pastor and one of the words we talk about is like pastoral care Yeah. of knowing like when to fix and when to feel. And that's kind of one of the themes I picked up on your book. And I'm curious, it, 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 talk more about that. Like, how do you know when, when do you fix and when do you feel with someone? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and especially in roles of pastors. And I believe like we're all pastors in different ways, but when you're sure. a vocational pastor, you are yeah. constantly bombarded with yeah. stories of people that yeah need all these things. And yeah. I understand. Um, there's a story actually in my book, which I'll, I'll tell now. Um, one of the girls that I was serving, she was uh, in our program for a few years. And then there was another incident of rape that had happened with her. And that completely killed me because I felt like if you're in my program, I want you to be safe. And if I cannot yeah. keep you safe, then what am I doing? You know, that was yeah. another kind of conflict of my leadership role in terms of could I still pursue this work because I'm, I feel like I'm failing in it. And mm -hmm. when the rape had happened, I was so intent on getting justice because it was recent. So I was like, who is this man? Where is mm -hmm. he? I'm going to go find him. I called all the lawyers. I called all the counselors. I called all the systems that needed to be in place and was taking her to all these appointments so that yeah. we could advocate for justice because I thought that's what she needed. Yeah. And one time when we were coming back, we actually had to get a HIV test as a result of that. We uh, got tested and as we were coming back from that test, she said, you know, when I told you the story of what had happened, I wish you just gave me a hug. Wow. And I was like, I forgot to feel in that moment. I forgot to engage wow. in the suffering in that moment. I forgot to listen to her pain in that moment. I just went yeah. straight to problem solving, straight to fixing, straight to the justice piece, which is yeah. not wrong, but yeah. it wasn't what she needed in that moment. And so I think it's discernment of knowing mm -hmm. what is ours to fix? What, what do they want to be fixed? Because a lot of times too, as pastors, we want to fix people's problems for them. So, well, guess what? Yep. People's yep. problems are people's problems and they will fix yep. it themselves. Amen. Hallelujah. Yep. And Amen. Uh, yeah, and that's imperative to realize too, because it's like your problem is your problem. My problem is my problem. I will help mm -hmm. you. But if you don't want to get help, that's your problem, hey, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is where that, again, that separation and that discernment of knowing, hey, I will, I will support you in that journey. But if you're not ready to engage in it, we can't do anything. And so that's where that empathy um needs to come into place first and foremost actually is the empathy rather than the fixing so i would say feel first empathize mm. first listen first and then ask what do you need hmm because what, then, what a novel concept, right? What a novel concept. What's unique? Because then maybe she and maybe she wouldn't have said, but I don't know. Maybe she would have said, yeah. just give me a hug. And I would be like, yeah. OK, because that's another point too. working with survivors. Not all of them want to be touched, especially mm. when they're triggered. So that's another yeah. thing where it's like, ask. You don't know what they want. You don't know what they need. And if they do, they will tell you if they don't know, they will tell you when they're ready. Yeah. Well, uh, this is great stuff here and uh, it kind of brings to mind something else I was curious about from your from your book 
is the challenge of, I, I don't know, I think this is early on in your book, I kind of kind of got this from your writing, where you, you struggle with the sense of like where your storytelling kind of overshadows someone else's story and how you balance, how you balance that. Mm, yeah. So as a filmmaker photographer working in international space, there's a fine line between exploitation and empowerment. Yeah. And being, you know, working as a photographer for um, about eight years before I started doing international development work, um, I was constantly struggling with that line because a lot of spaces that I was going into, people were resistant because mm -hmm. they've been traumatized before from the camera. Other times people were like, excited because they had never seen yeah. a camera before and they really yeah. wanted to see what do they look like in, in, in this photo. And so it's knowing, right, like who, who are we working with and who are, are we um, engaging with? And um, what I've learned is again, asking like, uh, can I take your photo? Hmm. Can I tell your story? Um, the girls, um, so, so the, the stories in the book, full disclosure, the stories in the book are a culmination of multiple stories. So not one person mm -hmm. is one person, but all yeah. the facts are true. Um, mm -hmm. and so the folks that I had relied on in, um, some of the, you know, glimpses of their story, they were part of my editing process. And mm. so in including them in this process to ensure that their voices as Zambians, as Kenyans, as survivors, as women were leveraged in the best way, because I can't identify with all of those levels of, of what their story is. And so ensuring that, um, that their story was leveraged with dignity was first and foremost important for me. At the same time, I had to realize that their stories are their stories, you know, just as people's yeah. pain is their pain. And my story is my story. So I yeah. even had to dig in as I was writing this book, what is my story? As a result mm. of hearing someone else's story, what happened yeah. for me in that moment? And that's what I tried my hardest to do with this is to realize that all of our stories are intertwined. All of our stories, whether we hear them on the news or we hear them from yeah. a friend, we have a connection and responsibility to that connection. And I think that's what's missing a lot in Western context is yeah. we yeah. will see a story and be like, oh, that's sad. Yeah, yeah. Our humanity is what binds us together. And mm -hmm. again, the sharing of the su suffering, Henry Nowen said this, the sharing of our suffering moves us forward. If we don't mm -hmm. share in the suffering, if we don't share in the pain, we're going to sit back and be paralyzed, like you said, and stay in our sense of knowing, in our sense of what humanity is from a very limited perspective. But if we choose to open up to the suffering, if we choose to open up to the pain, actually, that our capacity and our understanding of the world will be expanded to a greater extent than we never realized before, but only mm. if you engage in the suffering. So that's the paradox there that you have to yeah. dig into it. So in digging into other people's stories that forced me to dig into my own. And you'll see as you read my book, a lot of things that I realize on my own where it's like, oh, my God, I have an anger issue. Oh, my mm. God, my words can be very violent. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm not listening as well as I thought I was listening. You know, going back to that story of, you know, wanting to seek justice when that's not what she wanted yeah. in the moment. So this is where the stories of the world can teach us something new if we choose to learn from it. And we choose to recognize our responsibility to connection and our responsibility to healing ourselves so that we can heal the world. Well, this is great. Let me ask you lastly, 
uh, again, I, I come from a church context as a pastor, and I, I am just curious, like, what what would you say if you if you had, like, one message for the American church? And really, I'll be honest, you're, like, the white American church predominantly. Like, what what is your message for, like, uh, I think it's so easy for, especially for white Americans to, to, like you talked about, being isolated, separated from the hurt and pain and tragedy and, and injustice of even in our nation and across the world, like, what would you say? Well, I have a lot to say, things to say to the white church. <laughs> yeah. But go, I, will, go. I, will, <laughs> I will stick to uh, the thesis of my book, which is those who have experienced the most violent forms of oppression have the potential to become the most powerful liberators in our world, in mm. our church, in our families, in our relationships. Now, if you truly began to understand that you're going to shift the way that you lead, you're going to shift yeah. the way that you see people of color. You're going to shift the way that you view survivors of trauma. You're going to shift the way that you see the immigrant, the outcast, the widow, the prostitute. All mm. of those things in your perspective will shift if you see them not as people to be helped, but as liberators. So calling yeah. them into their existence and their future existence, as we talk about future Christianity, yeah. uh, right? <laughs> the, their future existence of who they could be. They are mm. liberators in their own sense, in their own right. And so if we treat them as such, it's going to change the way that we do ministry and the way that we run our churches. Yeah. Yeah. Slightly. Well, that's, this, is, this is good. It's not like we haven't all said it enough lately. These are unprecedented times. COVID-19 has upended the way we do life, community, and church. As church leaders, we find ourselves disoriented. Outreach, connection, cultivating a sense of team among church staff and creatives. Nothing works like it did before. Torn Curtain Arts gets it, and we're here to help. We strengthen the creative soul of churches. It's why we exist. And in these times, we have dedicated ourselves to helping churches set up live streaming solutions and assisting with live events. We also provide coaching for worship leaders as well as substitute worship leading for both in-person and online events. Contact us at torncurtainarts.org and let's chat about how we can keep you connected to your creativity in this season and grow your community. Let's let's shift gears here and let's go into some closing questions. I really appreciate your responses. Uh, so good. Um, so you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Um, if you were Pope for a day, uh, what might that day look like? Anything you want to do? That kind of thing. Oh, man. Well, I love the current Pope, so I don't know what I could do that's outside of what he's already <laughs> doing. But, and he has actually spoken to this recently, um, sexual violence in the church. Yeah. We got a problem. And so yep. I think there needs to be a massive reform and overturning of incidences, um, having mm -hmm. stronger s reporting systems. And if I don't know if the Pope only controls the Catholic Church, but like that is the model, I think, for every yeah, other denomination. Ways, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so if the Catholic Church could lead in, uh, yeah. what does it look like to reform pastoral leadership when there's been situations of abuse? And what does the reporting system look like that protects the survivor and the survivor mm -hmm. actually gets the justice that they deserve, um, overturning that completely? and uh, ensuring that there is special care for those who are outed 
um, in yeah. their pastoral leadership and special care for those who are, have been harmed. Um, I think those systems need to be in place in all church structures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you would want to meet or bring back to life? Oh, so many, but I will say Moses, he's my boy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Moses is my boy. Uh, I'd like to just talk to him and be like, what happened at the tree at mm -hmm. the burning bush? And what did you sure. do with all of those grumbling people? <laughs> like what, what kept you sane in the midst of the yeah. grumbling and all the crazy people? Um, yeah, I'd love to just talk to Moses. He's, he's my boy and has been my model for leadership. I like that. Uh, what do you think history will remember from this current time and place? <laughs> okay. So this is, I love this question. <laughs> One, history will say, damn, those Christians were a joke. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those yeah. Christians were a joke. They've been supporting a outspoken bigot, racist, mm. white supremacist. They've been using their faith as a way to cover their own sins and their own ability mm. to connect with humanity. They've yeah. been fighting against their own and refusing yeah. to align with Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. They've been funding initiatives that are not imperative to human dignity and life. Mm. We're putting, they're putting money in churches and buildings and mm -hmm. personal persona and privilege and yeah. TV shows and podcasts and webinars and looking good and forgetting mm -hmm. our neighbor that's locked up in prisons and yeah. locked up in detention centers. So folks will look back and say like those Christians were a joke. At the same time, mm -hmm. they will look back and say young people of color are rising up into places mm -hmm. of leadership and authority and power and are learning and finally learning and finally finding their voices to speak out against um, the white supremacy that has been plaguing all of us for so long. And so it, it's this shift, right? It's like, oh my God, Christians yeah. are a joke, but at the same time, yeah. that is causing an uprising against the, this monarchy <laughs> that, yeah. that is yeah. killing us all, literally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's a both and that I hope people will look back us back on us and say okay folks are str str finally starting to shift and fight against the monarchy uh that's a great answer yeah yeah what do you hope what do you hope for the future of christianity i hope the future of christianity will finally realize that people in oppression have power and dignity and autonomy and authority and vision hmm. and unless we look to that vision we will perish. Wow. My entire theological understanding comes from Isaiah 61, which is the first uh, public proclamation that Jesus made in Luke 4. Yeah. Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me. Yeah. Right? We know that. Yada, yada, yada. Verse 4 goes on to say that they will be the ones to rebuild, restore, and renew places that have been devastated by violence. They, the oppressed, they the prisoners, they the poor, hmm. they the marginalized, they the women. Now you're preaching. So we forgot verse four. We're like, yeah, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Yeah, yeah. the spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm yeah. going to preach the good news. I'm yeah. going to go visit the poor. I'm going to support yep. the prisoners and whatever, or feed the prisoners and whatever, and mm -hmm. then leave. 
That's yep. the part problem. You left. You left the prison. Yep. You left the poor on the streets. You went back to your comfy homes. Your job was to ensure that they find the healing and the liberation and the justice that they deserve so that they can be the ones that rebuild, restore, and renew places that have been devastated. It's not you. It's not you, mm -hmm. homeboy. It is their role. And so our role then is to leverage mm -hmm. that trajectory. That's the whole trajectory of what's supposed to happen. And if you look at scripture, we look at Esther, we look at Moses, we look at so many yeah. figures of those who were in oppression became Joseph, the most powerful yeah. leaders, yeah. right? We forgot that story and somehow we're just raising the privilege of those who are mm. already in power. Something happened to our Christianity. And so the future is to actually go back in time yeah. and realize what Isaiah 61 says as it relates to Luke 4, Jesus' first public proclamation. He's, he quoted mm -hmm. that, that prophecy for a reason and we yeah. forgot it. Boy, the last five minutes have been worth the entire podcast right here. <laughs> Uh, I'm just like this. I don't know if I wrote this down right, but I like to take notes. It, I love that. Uh, it's so powerful. If we don't see the vision of the oppressed, we will perish. I mean, wow. We're perishing already. It's like, hello, yeah, this is yeah, why yeah. all y'all need to vote. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but vote <laughs> for Biden and Kamala. I am being explicit because we will perish if we do not we're all so many people have already literally perished yeah. literally died as a result of the pandemic yeah as a result of uh police brutality yeah as a result of lack of access to health care for women particularly black women mm -hmm. and we need well, better systems and structures unfortunately this will not air until after the election but we'll put that energy out there yes vote in four so. years <laughs> Yeah, vote in four years for the same things you're talking about right now, or two years, yeah. frankly. Those midterm elections yeah. matter. True. That they matter. True. So, um, wow, this is, thank you so much for your time. This has really been great. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so follow us. Our organization is called Freely in Hope. You can follow us on Freely in Hope on Instagram, Facebook. You can follow me, Nicole, N-I-K-O-L-E underscore Lim, L-I-M, on all social media accounts as well. Um, we would love to inv invite people into partnership with us. We have a cool thing called the Hope Circle where you can donate every month any amount, and that amount specifically goes to our survivors who are uh, getting the holistic support that they need to thrive, like I said earlier, the education, the healthcare, yeah. the mental health, the safe housing, your monthly donation within Hope Circle supports that. So you can visit us at freelinehope.org and sign up there. Great, great. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and uh, may God's peace be with you. Thank you. I received that. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks and go in peace.